I the prettiest? Am I the baddest mofo low down around this town? I can't hear you. Come inside. Ignore the strange stickiness of the carpet beneath your feet. Find the right seat, the one without the missing arm and the exposed springs. Pull the candy bar out of your inside coat pocket. Look at the color swirl as the canned music plays. Wait for the lights to go down. Listen for the telltale clacking of film being pulled through the gate. Relax. Watch. Because we all feel better better in the dark. She can't nurse with shit, but I keep her on because although I can't feel it, I know I have erections in her presence. see epic movie you don't want to see epic movie you don't want to re-rent remember the titans again for, no, the, for the 50th no. time you want to see something new and hopefully different hopefully we can steer you towards this and tom is going to go first okay with a movie that is one of our favorites i want you to pay close attention to his description of this movie and how it is because we're going to tie it into a recent right. blockbuster mm-hmm. so Pay more attention than you usually would. Take it away, Mr. We DJ. are talking about the 1988 thriller Miracle Mile, directed by Steve Dardanet. It was his last film. He only made three films. The 1983 Bob and Doug McKenzie vehicle Strange Brew. Oh, all right. It's funny because it's not only that I see these three films. They're all films that I've liked. Strange Brew, Cherry 2000. Oh, yeah, Cherry 2000. And this was the last one he made. It stars Anthony Edwards way, way, way before ER, and Mayor Winningham. One of my favorite 80s Mm -hmm. actresses who who never had the career I felt he should have had. And it was a film that kind of snuck in on little cat feet into the theaters. I think it only was here in New York at a couple of theaters. I saw it in uh, Forest Hills. I saw it, I think it was on 50th Street, if I'm not mistaken. But I did Mm -hmm. see it in the theaters with my jaw hanging open. (laughs) A little bit of background information before we go into what the plot is about. Apparently it was this legendary script that had been floating around Hollywood forever. And it was named as one of the ten best unmade screenplays in 1983, Stephen E. wrote it just out of the American Film Institute for Warner Brothers with help directing it as well. He spent three years in production limbo until De Jarnette optioned it himself. His own script, he had to buy it back mm-hmm. for $25,000. So he offered him $400,000 to buy it back. He turned them down. When he shuffled it onto other studios, they balked at the mix of romance and nuclear war and the film's downbeat ending. This is what drew Anthony Edwards, however. It scared the hell out of me, he says. It really made me angry, too. I just couldn't believe that somebody had written this. It's a film about Harry, he's a trombonist in a retro swing outfit. Mm -hmm. He's in Los Angeles, and he runs into the woman of his dreams at the La Brea Tar Pits Museum. Mayor Whittingham. Mayor Whittingham. With a really vivid red dye job and the most unfortunately purple outfit in the history of the Yeah, red and purple don't go together. And it's like instant chemistry between the two of them. The thing that he's always dreamed of is finding the right woman. He agrees to go out on a late night date because she works at what is supposed to be Fat Burger, but it's not. So he makes it a late night date to take her out for dinner after 
her shift ends That's at that shift is over. 1 o'clock. However, there's an electrical problem in his hotel, and the clock doesn't work. Mm-hmm. He wakes up at 4 o'clock, rushes down to this yeah, diner. late, yeah. She's long gone, and he tries to call her, picks up the phone, and there's this guy on the other end mm-hmm. who is freaking the fuck out. He's hysterical. He is hysterical because we just shot our nuclear wad. America initiated nuclear war with the Russians. After confirming with this woman played by Denise Denise Crosby. Crosby. We don't know what she does for a living. Exactly, yeah. But she is very, very... But she's connected. It's a bunch of diverse characters that's in this diner. Mm-hmm. And there's some speculation at first that maybe somebody was just playing a really sick joke, but Denise Crosby has got this special suitcase, and mm-hmm. she gets on the phone right. from her reaction that they're thinking, maybe Oh this shit, this is really going down. And in fact, they're in a total panic. Uh, Denise Crosby arranges for a helicopter to take them to a safe house in Antarctica. But they have to be there by a certain certain time. time. But Harry refuses to go without Julie, the Mayor Winningham character. Right. So he's given an hour. And the rest of the film is a more or less real-time depiction of him trying to get to Julie. While Los Angeles is is freaking out. Slowly. All all around. Nobody knows at first, so he's trying to keep it quiet. In fact, he tells the character played by Michael Williamson because he wants to get his cooperation. Mm Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, i got to get somebody. Because he tries to go back and get his sister, he triggers off something that makes things get worse, Mm -hmm. that makes things get worse, that just makes, it's just one thing on top of the other. But then also you have people, and people can't keep their mouth shut. Right. So they're calling their relatives and they're telling them. You've got like a garbage man and the other waitress at the diner. He's going to say, Make a list of essential people. Thinkers, scientists. They don't know who they're... What about that Carl Sagan guy? (laughs) It's all over the place. It's a messy film. But it's a magnificently frantic little film. Yeah. And there's that one supreme moment after we learn the Michael Williamson character's fate when they're coming out of the site where he meets his fate. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh shit, everybody knows now. Because the cops have their guns trained on Harry and Julie... And then all of a sudden, they run. This is what I'm saying. This is why I like the movie so much, because gradually, the city is freaking out. In the meantime, there's always that kernel of doubt that maybe this really isn't happening. Mm -hmm. You really don't know. You really don't see any evidence of it. Until that last act. All right. Until that terrific last act. Where everything just goes to hell in a Mm handbasket. And they miss the, the Denise Crosby helicopter, but they have another helicopter, and they have to find somebody to fly. To fly the helicopter, they find the guy, and he does the thing that's almost become like a mantra in the film, I have to find somebody. Yeah. And you think it's his wife or his girlfriend, it turns out it's his gay lover. Yeah. (laughs) It's a wonderful little film. And then you get to the unforgettable ending. People who saw Cloverfield would find very familiar. Which brings me back to what I was saying at the beginning. If you look at this movie, you see a lot of Miracle Mile was in Cloverfield. At least I saw it when I saw it. I said, oh shit, Miracle Mile. What happens is they get on that helicopter. Mm-hmm. The helicopter is, is taking off when it is hit mm-hmm. by one of the missiles mm-hmm. that the Russians have launched. And it ends up with the helicopter crashing in the La Brea tar pits, creating a full circle of the film. Much like the lovers in Cloverfield, Cloverfield. having a final epiphany as they go down to their deaths. But it's the same thing in Cloverfield that the guy wasn't going to leave without his girl, yeah, just exactly. like in Miracle Mile. Where and if he was just callous about it, he would have been saved. Yeah. The thing about is that the movie is really not about this so-called nuclear war that's going on. It's yeah. about the people. Everybody is trying to get because somebody. Because it's they, not until that last ten minutes that we have a confirmation that, yes, you're this right. is happening. There's always that thing in the back where Harry is going... Shit, what if I just caused a riot for nothing? Yeah, exactly. He's always got that in the back of his head. This would make a terrific double feature with Cloverfield mm. on the same evening if you wanted to yeah. watch it too. Because once again, it's a, it's not really about the disaster. It's about people trying to live through a disaster. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful movie. It amazes me that this film just disappeared. It was out of print for a long, long time. For the best of my knowledge, it's back out of print. It was on... VHS the year after it came out. Yeah. And I think it was allowed to go out of print there. Yeah, I had it on VHS there for a while. There is a no-frills version of it in full-screen format, which kills me. That floated around for a while. You could probably get it on Netflix, but to the best of my knowledge, that went out of print. I don't know if they're ever going to bring it back into print again. Mm-hmm. D. Jarnett 
never did another film. Which is pity because all three of the films that he made are films that I've liked on some level or another. Mm -hmm. He did write an episode of The X-Files for its first season. The one with the sign language monkey. Oh, he wrote that one? He wrote that episode, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but this is definitely an offbeat movie. If you can find it, (laughs) I definitely recommend that you get it. But be warned, as you've heard from Tom's excellent description of it, it's not your feel-good date movie. So, no, you it's know, not. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm look, oh, wait, wait, look. We, we do have some more. It looks like Steve DeJournet went into uh, television after that. Oh, okay. Remember American Gothic? Of course. And Kindred the Embraced? Mm-hmm. He's directed a large number of television episodes, including episodes of The Untouchables of ER, Nash Bridges, Lizzie McGuire... And a miniseries called Nash, Flight 29 Down. Nash Bridges? Really? Yeah. Okay, that's one of my favorite TV shows. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look for his name next time I watch a Nash Bridges rerun, which I do at least about once a week. And he was apparently the creative consultant for three episodes of The X-Files as well. I think it looks like the second season. Jahanda Verletz, which is a Morgan and Wong episode. Okay. Irresistible, and Aubrey. But he's kept active, so I'm glad. I looked at that list and said... That was the only three things he did. I said, oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to hear he's still working. He's still doing his thing. Is it my turn? It is your turn. I love movies about writers, being a writer myself, of naturally. Two of my favorite movies about writers is the one that they did with Robert E. Howard, uh, The Whole Wide World. World. Yeah, with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and Renee Zellweger. Vincent D'Onofrio played a wonderful Robert E. Howard, and Barton Fink with John Turturro. But it's hard to make a movie about a writer, because what do writers do? They sit down and write. Right. <laughs> so you can't do a two-hour movie about a guy sitting down writing. What's the next best thing that you do? You make a movie about a writer who's also a detective, mm-hmm. which brings us to 1982's Hammond. Which was directed by Wim Wenders. Which is not uh, the type of film when you think Wim Wenders, you don't expect detective movie. No, he did the German movie about the angels. Uh, uh, yes, of Desire. Uh, Bruno Gans says the angel, yes. Right, but he did this through Francis Ford Coppola's Zoetrope Studios. Mm-hmm. This movie stars Frederick Forrest as the writer, Samuel Dashiell Hammett, who, when this movie opens up, he's living in San Francisco. He's just quit to quit the Pinkerton, and he's working as a pulp writer, and he's making a living at it. But he's fighting tuberculosis, he's fighting alcoholism. That's how he spends his days, until he's visited by his old friend, Jimmy Ryan, played right. by Peter Boyle. Mm-hmm. who needs his help because he's looking for this Chinese girl named Crystal Ling for some unspecified reason. Now, Sam is unwilling to get back into the game. He's been out of it for a while. He's a little off his game. He doesn't know if he can really get back into it. And he's happy writing. But, however, Jimmy calls in an old debt because he took a bullet for Sam right. back in the old days. Sam agrees to help him. While they're in Chinatown looking for this girl, he loses Jimmy, and he also loses his latest story. <laughs> <laughs> The local cops, as happens in all of these folk noir stories, they come and they lean on him. Now, in order to get his story back and to find Jimmy, he's got to find the girl. So, in essence, he takes over his friend's case. Mm -hmm. This movie is fascinating for a lot of reasons. The main being, in this movie, you see a lot of elements of things that are in Dashiell Hammett's story. For, like, the Maltese Falcon Mm -hmm. and Thin Man. We run into the prototypes of these characters. Like, there's this one Weasley little character played by David Patrick Kelly. Right. From The Warriors. He plays a gunman Mm -hmm. that's just like the gunman that was played by Elisha Cook in The Maltese Falcon. And as a matter of fact, Elisha Cook does have a substantial role in this movie as a cab driver Mm -hmm. who drives Sam Hammett around. There's a fat man in this movie. There's Chinatown opium dens. There's crooked cops. There's crooked politicians. There's the not-so-good girl with a heart of gold, played Mm -hmm. by Mary Lou Henner. She plays the girl downstairs who eventually ends up helping out Sam and figuring out this intricate mystery, which leads him through San Francisco and all these various characters. So another thing that makes it interesting is that while Sam is following this trail to find Crystal Link, each one of these characters, his story manages to fall into their hands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, (laughs) but he's never quite able to get it back. Mm -hmm. So he's pursuing the girl and his story literally at the same time. By the time we get to the conclusion of the story, Sam doesn't get his story back, but you see that he has a new one in his head, and Mm -hmm. you see him at the end. Writing the Maltese Falcon right. now. Frederick Forrest is totally amazing in this movie. He looks like a 40s guy. Remember in our Dennis Quaid episode yeah. where we were talking about Dennis Quaid looks like a 50s guy? Mm-hmm. Frederick Forrest looks like a 40s guy with his hair slicked back 
and more trench coat and right. Dora and Peter Boyle. He's also terrific playing Jimmy Ryan, who eventually ends up as has to happen in these film noir right. things ends up betraying him. Mm-hmm. The production values, I like it because it's obvious this was done on sound stages. stages. Which is how they would do it in the 40s. Exactly. That's the point I was going to make. So that seems to be a major theme running through the three episodes that we recorded today. Films that are trying to do it the way of the period they're in. Well, back in 1982, they didn't have CGI and stuff like that. You know, which everybody wants Mm -hmm. to do today. Everybody just wanted to do CGI. Everybody just wanted to do CGI. But it gives this movie a unique stylized look. Where it looks realistic, but not kind of so realistic. Right. The story just completely hangs together. It's a wonderful movie about a writer who happens to be a detective, and a right. detective who is also a writer. So you get to see him writing, but you also get to see him doing some action right. stuff, too. If you're in the mood for a good 1930s, 40s-style thriller, I'd hardly recommend Hammett. Put that okay. on your Netflix queue. Started a brief ad of films about writers doing these tech because you have, also have Kafka. Yeah, which we talked about last night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kafka. Maybe we ought to do a whole episode about movies about writers. Right. Because there have been quite a few mm-hmm. going back to the most famous of all Sunset Boulevard. Right. William Holden. There have been a substantial amount of movies about writers. Enough, I think, that we could possibly put together a whole episode about that. Let's move in right along. Let's move right along. As if this isn't a complete 180 degrees from what we just talked about. <laughs> Okay, to review, we've so far talked about a nuclear scare movie and a movie about an alcoholic writer doing a private detective thing. Uh Uh-huh. So, next up, The Last Dragon. (laughs) Shut up! A black guy who thinks he's Chinese. See, that's what we should have started the thing of. Who's the baddest podcast? (laughs) In the dark! (laughs) For those of you who don't know, this is the first and the best of my knowledge only film that was produced by Barry Gordy Barry of Motown. Motown. When it was first released, it was known as Barry Gordy's, Gordy's The Last, the last Dragon. Dragon. Come looking at yeah. the... Although you notice how small Barry Gordy's... Look how small yeah. his name is. Whereas oh. in, in the posters you remember, it was like, Barry Gordon's The Last Dragon. Oh, his name was bigger than the yeah. title. Yeah. This is a peculiar, peculiar film. It was made in 1985. It is a comedy it is a martial arts film. It's it, a it, romance. It's a romance. It's so many different things, and it manages to be those things well. The main character, played by Tymok, who apparently has been continued to work, but not in anything really high profile. This is his one and only starring role. Right. The story goes that the director was conflicted as to whether he should choose an actor and to teach him to do martial arts, or a martial artist and teach him how to act. Mm. And the decision was made to find the martial artist, because it would probably be easier to teach him to act the other way around. And they chose Tymok, who was 20 years old at the time, and he plays Bruce Leroy. <laughs> Bruce Leroy Green. That's Bruce Leroy name. Green, <laughs> who emulates Bruce Lee and is, has dreams of becoming the, a great martial artist. He's studying under a martial arts master. Right. In the first scene of the film, he goes, I've taught you everything I can. There's nothing else I, nothing can, else do, I yeah. can teach you. And he's like, oh, but I have to learn more, master. I have to learn more. It's like, there is this master I've heard called Some Dumb Guy. Which I didn't get the first couple of times I heard yeah, it. Yeah, you don't get it the first time. And it's like, you find him. Yeah. He so, will so, give you the glow. Because he's, he's looking for this mystical glow. Supposedly yes, the when, glow. You, when your mind and body become as one, you, you create the glow mm-hmm. where you're in total harmony with the universe. Right. And that's what Bruce Leroy is looking for. And we should mention that he's a black guy yeah. who lives in Harlem with his Harlem. father who owns a pizza And I love Harlem. how, with the exception of the little brother... Nobody in his family finds this odd. That he walks around wearing Chinese garb. The traditional Chinese robe. Just like yeah. if you saw Bruce Lee in a movie, yeah. he wears the hat. He walks around and he goes room. and goes, Mama-san, Papa-san. Papa-san, yeah. And his little brother, who is infinitely streetwise, is always telling man, why don't you take that Chinese <laughs> shit off? off? You're embarrassing me. The little brother's whole life revolves around this video show. And only in the movies can there be a daily video show in, New- in the New York market. Hosted by Vanity, the former Prince protege, who's not the greatest actress in the world, to be honest. No, but she looked smoking hot. Mm-hmm. And she had a brief career. Yeah, she, she was, was in, in Action Jackson. Action well. Jackson, yeah. She was in a couple of things before becoming a born-again Christian, I yes. believe. Yeah, she, she is now a God. minister. Her paths crossed with Bruce Leroy due to the ministrations of Eddie Arcadian. 
<laughs> who is played by Christopher Murney. And this is where the film goes totally into whack job. It film. goes into total nut mode. Chris Murney, Eddie Arcadian, is a video game magnet. He runs video game arcades. It's again, something you never see anymore. Throughout the city, he is intent on turning his girlfriend, played by Broadway actress Faith Prince, who is obviously supposed to be Cindy Lauper, into a pop star, and he figures that the best way to do that is to get her videos on, on Vanity, Vanity show. show. There's also this other guy, Shonuff. <laughs> the Shogun of Hall. Played by the six-foot-four actor Julius Carey. <laughs> Who apparently knew no martial arts, <laughs> would show up to work every day dressed like, he used the quote from the director in the commentary, a Wall Street stockbroker. Yeah. And he... And then he would transform into this wild man. <laughs> yes. With the football pads. And, and the, he's got a cape. And yeah. he's got he slitted sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And he travels with this entourage. And the whole running gag of the movie is that every time he shows up, who's the baddest? And the entourage... Showed off! Who's the prettiest? Shut up! Who's the strongest? Shut up! The Shogun of Harlem. <laughs> and he wants to conquer Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee Roy won't fight him. And they have this marvelous scene in a 42nd Street movie yeah. theater. Where Actually, <laughs> that's the old Chinatown Fair movie theater just off the Brooklyn Bridge, mm-hmm. which unfortunately closed down about three or four years ago. That was notorious because that was the place when Hong Kong movies first started Becoming into Vogue. Mm-hmm. That was the place you saw them first. Oh, okay. If you knew about it, because a lot of people didn't know about it outside of Chinatown. Uh-huh. But if you knew about it, you can go there and see all Jackie Chan films in the original Chinese mm-hmm. before anyone else knew about it. He goes to this theater and Sheldon tells him to turn off the movie because he's looking for Bruce yeah. Leroy, who's sitting in the first row mm-hmm. watching a Bruce Lee right. movie eating popcorn okay. with chopsticks. Mm-hmm. So Shogun is ranting and raving about how Bruce Leroy is a cannibal fighter. Yeah. And in the back row, he hears something. Oh, nigga, shut up. Sit your ass down. Make me. And they said, make me. Oh, and then a brawl starts out. In the one of the great things about this film is oh. it's so very 80s. So it's the oh. two guys who come out of the order. One is about my size. Mm-hmm. At like 270 pounds. And is wearing a half shirt. Uh-huh. And you're like seeing it go like. Man, put the other half on. So the movie goes on, mm-hmm. and as we find out that Eddie Arcadian is putting pressure on yeah. Vanity. And by the way, Eddie Arcadian has, we don't know what it is in a tank, but we yeah. know that when he puts something in the tank, it comes out skeletonized. Yeah. And then Bruce Leroy rescues Vanity from one of mm-hmm. the strong arms. Right. And including, by the way, the first film role for Chaz Palminteri. Didn't you tell me William H. Macy? Yes, William H. He's called William Macy in the film. He plays Laura Charles' director. But it's totally over the top. Yeah. Eventually, the two plots merge together. Eddie and Shonuff, they get together to get Bruce Leroy and get the video on the show finally, which leads to the final confrontation between Between him and where he finally realizes who the last dragon is. And of course, let's not forget the three Chinese brothers down in the... <laughs> I mean, that's one of the biggest... It's that the, the most Chinese person in the film is Taimok, and the most black person in the film are these three Chinese kids who work in the some dumb guy fortune cookie factory. Because when we first meet them, they're outside the fortune cookie factory guarding the doorway, mm-hmm. and they're breakdancing and rapping. Beyond a certain point, it becomes just totally comic book where... He actually, in cheesy 80s special effects, starts manifesting the glow. Yeah, they start playing the music. Eddie Arcadian shoots him, mm-hmm. and then he catches the bullet in. <laughs> because supposedly yep. that's one of the stories that everybody says about Bruce Leroy, that he mm-hmm. catches bullets in his right. teeth. But after a certain point, you just got to go with No one even make a good double feature with? What? Buckaroo Banzai. Okay, there you go. Because it's the same type of movie. You just stop saying, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Man, just let me sit back and just enjoy the... We were talking about New York movies that don't feel like New York. This definitely does feel like New York. There's this one scene... I can actually identify the block where they go into his father's pizzeria. Direct your pizza to Daddy Daddy Green's pizza. pizza. (laughs) (laughs) And show enough goes into like, where's Bruce Leroy? Uh And they end up trashing the place. Yeah. It's a it, lot of fun. It, it, it's a it, lot it of fun. It has no pretensions about it, although the director thought he was making this great statement about having minority characters as heroes. Mm-hmm. The fact is it has no pretense. It knows what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's a goofy, fun movie to have a goofy, fun time. Take your girl out. It's a great Saturday night rental. It's one you can sit with your friends and get a pizza and just, you know, oh man, it's just a lot of fun. And the other thing that, that I want to mention is that this was also fairly notable for this was a film... 
that included two music videos within the course of the film. Yes, it did. Everybody remembers Rhythm of the Night, but right. there's another... By DeBarge. By DeBarge. There's another one by a female artist that apparently never took off that Eddie Arcadian is looking at as he's waiting for Bruce Leroy to show up. Music videos were just becoming a major thing. A major thing at the time. And from the goofy fun, we go back to the depressing... Uh, now we go back to the depressing <laughs> shit. <laughs> So. You see, folks, we switch gears up here to me without any problem at all. Yes. This movie, actually, there was two I had by Sam Peckinpah that I was waffling back and forth between which one. This, this whole conversation started when I said, I'm thinking about putting Straw Dogs in this. And Came you said, don't, hold off on that one because I want to do a Peckinpah film. And then you gave me the two choices. One of them was Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, which Tom said, no, I don't think it's all that obscure. All right. Then I said, well, how about bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia? And he said, bingo, that's yeah. it. That's the one I'm going to do. Just to give you an idea of how violent and how grim and how twisted it is, the movie starts out with a pregnant girl being brought into this huge hall filled with guys with guns and weeping, wailing women. The guy sitting behind the desk asks her, who's the father? She won't tell him. And he asks again, well, who's the father? She won't tell him. He asks, I'm going to ask you one more time. She won't tell him. He has his henchman break his own daughter's arm because she won't tell him who the father is. But it turns out he knew all the time. He just wanted her to admit it. Mm-hmm. So he gives his men a mandate. Bring me the head of Alfredo right. Garcia. And he puts a $1 million bounty out on the guy. All of his caballeros and gunmen and assassins, they spread out all over the place mm-hmm. to go find Alfredo Garcia. Now we cut to a little seedy border town. We see Warren Oates. He's working in this club. He's playing piano. He's sick of singing Guantanamera for the American right. tourists. And in walks these two guys. One is played by Gig Young, and uh, offhand, I can't think of who the other one is. But it's, it's two fairly well-known American actors. They are also looking for Alfredo Garcia, and they know that Warren Oates' character, Benny, knows him. So they say, okay, well, we'll give you a couple thousand dollars if you tell us where he's at. Robert Weber. Right, Robert Weber. Gig Young and Robert Weber. Benny hears about the $1 million bounty on him. He also knows that Alfredo Garcia is, in fact, dead. <laughs> Somebody mm-hmm. else killed him, totally right. unrelated to this matter. The only person that knows where he's buried is Alfredo Garcia's girlfriend, who he's also been sleeping with. Mm-hmm. He rounds her up, and they decide to go get the head and go right. get the money. They're being followed by Robert Weber and Gig Young. They go to the grave. They dig up the body, and they saw off the head in a very brutal vicious, gory scene. He has to kill to keep the head. He has to kill these other guys. And the girlfriend gets killed. Now he's driving down to Mexico with his head in a bag Mm -hmm. of ice. And he's going slowly nuts, if I remember correctly. Yeah, because he's drinking constantly. He's Mm. got to kill. You know, he's lost the girl he loved, because he did love the girl. In the meantime, he's got all these guys that are following him, trying to get the head from him. Right. This is one of Sam Peckinpah's nastiest movies, really. It was probably the last true Peckinpah film. Yeah, it was. This was the one where you could see his uncompromising vision. Right. One of the little visual gags of the movie is that the glasses that Warren Oates is wearing was actually a pair he did steal from Sam Peckinpah. Apparently, he he was playing the character of Benny. Mm Mm-hmm. As Sam Peckinpah, and I remember reading, the only one who didn't get the joke was Sam Peckinpah. The crew were cracking up and laughing, because they would say, well, he's doing Sam. So he's driving down to Mexico to a final showdown with the father with this head. This is not your date night fun movie. This is probably a movie that you want to see with the fellas. Y'all get together, y'all want to be he-men, and say, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, kill that motherfucker. You want to do that. You don't want to watch this with your girlfriend. It's seedy. Again, when we were talking about the Witchfinder General, remember we were talking about that... Everything was dirty and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing clean about this movie. Everybody is dirty. There are no likable characters in this movie. Not even Benny, who really is kind of reprehensible in his naked greed to get the money and to run over everybody. Right. I recommend it because it is Sam Peckinpah. He's one of our finest directors that ever lived. If you've ever seen The mm-hmm. Wild Bunch and you should have seen it. This, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. The list goes on. This is at the top. Of what I think really represents Sam Peckinpah. This and The Wild Bunch. If you want to know what the man's filmmaking style was like. Get these two movies. And you'll see what he was really mm. like. It's a good movie. It doesn't end well. No. <laughs> it's again kind of a theme of tonight isn't it? Yes it is. Movies that don't end well. But if you're willing to sit through it. And invest your time in it. Trust me it's worth it. Once again this is not going to be a happy episode. 
My last choice <laughs> is a film that caused a lot, and I mean a lot of stir when it was first released, and then kind of sunk without a trace mm-hmm. after a year or so later, and people don't talk about it anymore. Uh, I know. I think part of it is because Artisan went under shortly after yeah, it was Ar- made. Yeah, Artisan doesn't exist anymore. It's a Steve Soderbergh's 1999 film, The Limey. People, I think, are going to remember Soderbergh for the Ocean's Eleven's film. But people forget that Soderbergh has this wide, wide, wide breadth of subjects that he's tackled. And he's keeps coming back again and again to film noir. And this is a film noir with a twist in that it's a sort of unofficial sequel to a Ken Loach film, Poor Cow. Okay. This character... Played by Terrence Stamp as flashbacks throughout right. the film that they take from the they original took actual movie. footage from, from Poor Cow. Supposedly Soderbergh got Loach's permission before doing this. He actually has joked in the past. Well, now if somebody comes to me in about twenty years' time and asks me for permission to use clips from Sex Lies and Videotape in a film featuring uh, James Spader, I guess I can't. Yeah, turn I can't him down. say I can't say no. Yeah, yeah. Terrence Stamp plays Wilson, a hard, hard, hard mm-hmm. older man who has been out of prison most of his life. Mm-hmm. who comes to America after the death of his daughter. He basically gets this clipping out of nowhere from this guy he's never met before about the death of his daughter in a... But what everybody's saying is a car accident, but he doesn't believe it's a car accident. Mm-hmm. So he goes out to California, meets with this guy who's played by Luis Guzman. Wonderful actor. A wonderful actor. And it turns out that Guzman kind of suspects there's something wrong because shortly before she died, he drove Wilson's daughter to a confrontation at this seedy little warehouse somewhere. And he's convinced that these guys had some connection with her boyfriend, Peter Valentine, who in an excellent, excellent casting choice is played by Peter Fonda. Mm -hmm. Peter Valentine's this record producer who's kind of like... Coasting on his reputation. Thinly disguised. Phil Spector. Phil Spector, Phil right. Spector. And there are a number of actors throughout this film who are cast because of their reputation in the 60s. Because mm-hmm. you also have Joe D'Alessandro. One of Andy Warhol's favorite yeah. actors. And Leslie Ann Warren is, for lack of a better term, the romantic lead. What's the matter? They couldn't get Susan Sarandon? I think Leslie Ann Warren has more of a tie to that particular time in filmmaking. I don't know. It always strikes me that if they can't get Susan Sarandon, they get Leslie Ann Warren. Don't don't get me wrong, I like right. Leslie and Warren, because she's in one of our favorite movies, Choose Me. Yes. Yeah. And at first, we're not quite sure if Wilson is quite as hard as he claims to be. Until there's this, the scene that happens at the 20-minute mark. He goes to that warehouse, and he has the confrontation with William Lucking. Yeah. You know, another 60s, he 60s, was a 60s yeah. star of all those biker films. Mm-hmm. Has a confrontation with says, I want to talk to Valentine. And he goes, I don't know any Valentine. He just grabs this guy's head. And Bill Lucking is easily got a hundred pounds and about a foot of height on mm-hmm. Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp just grabs him by the back of the head, smashes his head into the desk mm-hmm. repeatedly while looking at the yeah, filing deck. Yeah. He calls his muscle men who kick the shit out of, take his gun mm-hmm. from the front of his belt and throw him out into the street warning him, if you come back again, I'm going to kill you. Then you realize, yes, Terrence Stamp is as hard. He is that hard. Because he waits till they're back inside. Gets up, reaches behind his back, pulls out the real gun. The real gun. We don't see what happens. He walks into the warehouse. We hear pop, pop, you pop, just pop, hit pop. And one guy comes running out and <laughs> running out. The devil is on his tail. And Terrence Stamp walks out, has calm as you please, with the coldest stare you'd ever want to see on an older man. Mm-hmm. And he just says, "Tell him I'm coming. Tell him I'm fucking coming." And you realize. This is not someone to be fucked with. This is not going to end well at all. And it's not going to end well at all. Meanwhile, Peter Valentine is up in the hills in this big house. He's got this, it's kind of sort of implied underage mistress. Yeah. We know that she's way, way younger than he is because in his first lines of dialogue he talks about, you know, when you were born I told your parents that they could not go wrong by naming you after a constellation. Tells you right there, you know. And if he remembers when she was born. Yeah. He's being taken care of by this lawyer played by Barry Newman. Another 60s 60s actor. Eventually, we follow Wilson and this surrogate family he sort of creates with Louise Guzman on the one side. And Leslie Ann Warren has the acting coach that his daughter went to Mm -hmm. on the other as they converge on Valentine. Mm Mm-hmm. And tries to extract his revenge. There's also a police detective who is played... I think it's Nikki Katz. 
Yeah, Nikki Cat. Nikki Cat, yeah. which one of my favorite scenes in the film, mm. where they pull him in for questioning. Terrence Stamp goes, "Look, I know you're the governor here." Goes on this long tear in Cockney speech. Mm-hmm. Nikki Cat just looks at him and goes. Okay, there's just one thing I don't understand, which is every motherfucking word you said. (laughs) And he kind of sort of condoned what he's about Uh to do, because he's like, some people have slippery fingers. Oops, my slippery fingers. Mm. And just, Mm. like, drops the file off of this whole... It turns out that, like, Valentine was losing money and made this drug deal that went very, very wrong. The daughter was going to rat on him. was going to rat him out. And he accidentally killed her. Okay. And you know what was funny? Because we do see the daughter in flashbacks. In flashbacks, yeah. I thought she looked familiar, and I finally realized last night when I was reviewing the film in preparation for tonight, that's Melissa George. Melissa George. Dark City, 30 Days and Nights. Oh, okay. The thing that makes this film very, very different from other films of this genre is the oral version of the film. The audio version of the film that you're listening to is told in a linear fashion. But visually, Soderbergh frequently cuts in little scenes that haven't happened yet or that are about to happen. Mm-hmm. Which, first of all, it creates a disorientation, but it also creates almost like a tone poetry feel to the film. You'll have a scene, he meets with Luis Guzman. They're sitting down and Guzman is talking about his friendship with Jenny. Mm-hmm. Is the name of the yeah, daughter. The daughter. Yeah. What'll happen is you'll see a f- couple of frames of just Terrence Stamp listening, but you'll be hearing his voice because that scene has just happened a few seconds ago. Mm-hmm. Then you'll see the scene that's actually going on. Then you'll see a scene that's actually that's going to happen in the future mm-hmm. of them driving to this warehouse. Right. Once you get into the rhythm and you start understanding, grasping the rhythm, it works. It's a new film language yeah. you have to get used to. And it's just very visually striking. And, like, you have things whenever there's a really distant flashback, there's streaks all over the screen. Right. Like, a, like an old film that's, like, slipping off its sprockets. Off the sprockets. Used to happen all the time, yeah. It's, of course, the, the best thing about the film is this just coiled spring performance of Terrence Stamp. Listen, people, he did other things besides play General Zod. Yeah. This is a man that's done, like, mm-hmm. 50 years, he's been around for what, 40, 50 years yeah. in British cinema. Of course, one of the running gags is he speaks still in 60s... In co- 60s Cockney slang, Cockney yeah. Cockney slang. So when the, he's having this, well, for lack of a better term, date mm-hmm. with the Leslie M. Warren character, she's talking about the Louise Guzman character, like, oh, he's a real character. She's like, oh yeah, he's my China. Mm-hmm. She's like, what? China, China Plate, mate. Which, of course, leads up to that scene that we excited earlier about. Mm-hmm. The only thing I don't understand is every mother... Every word you say, yeah. <laughs> But I love listening to Cockney accents. I get the gist of what they're saying, but I may not understand everything, but I just love the way that they say it. I also want to make reference to the score. The score is by Cliff Martinez, and it's very, very, very distinctive, very subtle. For all its violence, it's a very quiet film. Many times, Except when it has to be loud. <laughs> yeah, where it has to be loud. I think that's why the score is so quiet. Mm-hmm. So that when there's violence, it's all that more shocking because it's like an explosion. Because it ain't... It might not be for everybody. This film might be a little bit impenetrable for people who are used to being spoon-fed. But if you're willing to take a few moments to decode the language... Right. It's something, I think, that's very rewarding in the mm-hmm. long run. I think maybe probably that would you say it's better for home viewing that probably yeah that it, might be the best theater, that was probably the problem with it when it was in, in well, the theater well it did pretty well in the theaters from what I understand but you're right home viewing might be more rewarding because that way you can go back and you can yeah, reference that, that's what I'm saying sometimes when you're sitting much it, like Memento was you know where everything was done backwards and you had to get into the rhythm because a lot of times when you're sitting inside the movie theater and something happens and you say well what was that and you turn to your friend well what did he just say? And you really can't do it. But when you're at home, you can go back and say, okay, I got that part. It didn't do too well. You're right, actually. It won a lot of awards. It was a critical, but I recall hearing that it really didn't do all that mm-hmm. well. Another example of Wilson's Cockney dialogue is uh-huh. when he comes in to confront the warehouse foreman. Oh, you can't be too careful nowadays, you know? Lots of tea leaves about. Know what I mean? Excuse me? Yeah, tea leaves. Thieves. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is the exact line okay. from that scene with the Nikki Cat. 
Okay. How you doing then? All right? Oh, yeah? Now look, Squire, you're the gov here. I can see that. I'm your new man now, so there's no need to get your dickers in a twist. And that leads to him and saying that. that. Say, <laughs> you're right, it's probably a film that's best viewed at home. But it is definitely a rewarding... And I mean, I've seen it twice myself. Yeah. And I love it. I think it's a wonderful crime thriller. You know, it's a lot different. It's coming from the period where we had a number, like, Sexy Beast. So, oh, that's another good one. Where it seemed like there was this whole fascination with... British gangsters coming back and doing mean things doing to people. Doing mean things to people that have sent them up the river. And of the five films that are not The Last Dragon in this episode, this one may have the happiest ending. Still not a good one. It's still not a good one. Which leads us into to... our last... Now, I'm going to let you take the reins here because I'm not a big fan of this. Yeah, film. Tom doesn't like this movie at all, folks. But hang with me for a minute and I'm going to tell you what it's about. In my mind, the only thing good about it is the title, which is, comes from a from Warren, Warren Zevon song. Yeah, we, we love our Warren Zevon over here. The movie is Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, starring Andy Garcia. This is a crime thriller that's set in Denver, of course. Of course, yes. Said. That's the name. Andy Garcia is a gangster. Jimmy the Saint. He was a big-time gangster, but now he wants to get out. He's starting this business where he videotapes messages you want to leave for your loved mm. ones after you're dead. What will happen is that your loved ones will come and they'll hear whatever it is that you had to right. say. So he's trying to get this business off the ground. He needs some extra capital in order to do this. Enter the man with the plan, played by Christopher Walken, right. who's in a wheelchair that's air-powered. He's got one of those tubes that See, he blows. This is one of the reasons why I can't stand this film. <laughs> is that these aren't characters. These are people with quirks. Where does Christopher Walken start when he ever decides he wants to be yeah. in parody himself. Because you also got, uh, was it, is it Steve Buscemi or Treat Williams, who's the character who has leprosy? I'm getting to that. So the man with the plan charges Jimmy the Saint with this job. Mm -hmm. The man with the plan has his daughter, mm -hmm. who has a boyfriend. Gabrielle Amor. Right. He doesn't want her going out with the boyfriend. He just wants the boyfriend scared. They're coming into town. He just wants them to take the guy out. Scare him, rough him up a little right. bit, and run him back out of town. That's all they're supposed to do. Okay. Jimmy rounds up this crew. He rounds up... William no, Forsythe. William Forsythe, who plays his second in command. Mm -hmm. There's Christopher Lloyd, who's the guy that you're talking about. Right. He's pieces. the guy who's got pieces. He's the guy who's got leprosy. He's right. got fingers falling off. Treat Williams plays the psycho guy, Critical Bill. What he does is he practices boxing on dead bodies. He'll string mm -hmm. up dead bodies and then beat it to a pulp. Bill Nunn is another one mm -hmm. of the guys in his gang. Long story short, the deal goes sour. They accidentally kill the boyfriend, which is definitely not what the man with the plan wanted. But, however, since he owes Jimmy, he says, you and your boys have got to pack up and leave Denver and never come back. If you don't, it's buckwheats. Buckwheats, which is an imaginative way of killing somebody through the anus. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Without going into gory details. Jimmy is trying to tie up the loose ends of his life. Meantime, he's mm -hmm. trying to make arrangements for his boys to get out of town. And the man with the plan calls in his assassin, Mr. Shh. Played by, by Steve Buscemi to make sure that they leave town. Mm -hmm. Of course, some of them decide they're going to leave. Some of them decide that they're not going right. to leave. That's basically what the movie is about. These guys are getting bumped off one by one by Mr. Shh. While Jimmy is running around trying to resolve the situation because he's got a prostitute girlfriend played by, of all people, Feruza Balk. As far as I know, her other major role was Return to Oz. First, she was in The Craft. She Never was in it. that awful John Frankenheimer's remake of uh, Island Dr. Moreau. Okay. She was in The Waterboy. Did I see The Waterboy? Probably. She's a very Yeah, but she's a very distinctive looking actress. When you see her, you... With know, those, like, big, dark eyes of her that seem to, like, suck in the light. That look like she's got the permanent eyeliner yeah. all around mm -hmm. it. I do believe she's probably had a tattoo permanently around because yeah. she's got it in all of her mm -hmm. movies. Tom doesn't like... The reason why I like this movie is that it's got a totally made-up gangster language. They don't shake hands. They instead press their hands together. Mm -hmm. And they do that because in one part of the movie, Jack Warden is explaining these little bits of gangster mm -hmm. thing. And he said, well, the reason why we did that was because when we was in the joint, we couldn't shake hands. We had to press our hands up against right. the glass. So that's why they don't shake hands now. They got various things. They say, oh, yeah, we're well, giving a name. When they say, okay, well, tell the truth. It's got a totally invented gangster language I never heard before that I found fascinating just listening to mm -hmm. them and deciphering what it was. I always like seeing Andy 
Garcia in a starring role, because I don't think he gets enough of them. The cast is good. I like the cast. The story does peter out. After a while, you start to say, they've been told they gotta leave. Why don't they just leave? But they keep finding ways to stay in town, like the Bill Nunn character. Right. He goes to the local black gangster for help. You easy know, to win. try to hit. Easy guy, win. Yeah. And Mr. Shiz just comes in and blows away the whole yeah. club that he's in. Instead of just leaving town. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's stylish. The language is nice to listen to. It's got a nice score. But I'm going to give you this. It was one of these movies that was in the wave of Reservoir Dogs that tried to be... That's what I was saying, is that it has a style. It's called Tarantino's style. My biggest problem with this film, besides the fact that it was one of that endless stream it seemed that we got in the 90s of Tarantino Mank films. Yeah. I included, along with this, films such as Killing Zoe. Killing Zoe, yeah. Which I hated. Now that I hated with a passion. That was the one set in London where they robbed the bank. Yeah. Love and a 45, that was it. Lock, stock, and two smoking yeah. barrels. Well, that was Guy Ritchie's first movie. Yeah, film. Blood, Guts, Bullets, yeah. and Octane. Joe Carnahan's first movie. Mm-hmm. Very Bad Thing. Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Right, with Joe where, where these people thought that all you had to do was put people in black suits and white, and white sun- shirts. And sunglasses. And sunglasses. And come up with a goofy name that doesn't make mm-hmm. a lick of sense. Just have a lot of yeah. irrelevant dialogue. And throw in as many pop culture right. references well, like, for as me, you okay, could. Like, the ultimate example of that for me is from Killing Zoe, where you had, before they were getting ready to the robbery they cut to two of the robbers and one of them is yelling at the others your monkey just pissed on my Billy Holiday records <laughs> for no readily apparent reason they have these talks about the prison that fi- my biggest problem with this film is and I, I said it earlier mm-hmm. these people aren't characters no they're, they're all gimmicks. Yeah. They're gimmicks. Like you said, they're gimmicks and quirks. Right. Christopher Lloyd with the fingers falling right. off. And it's like this director. And, well, Gary Flitter's done other things, I know. Mm-hmm. It's like he thought that the gimmicks would have been enough, either the, a gimmick or a silly name, mm-hmm. would be enough to carry the film itself. Mr. Shh. Mr. Shh. It's worth it to see Steve Buscemi yeah. play a badass for one. He never gets to play a part like that. He's always playing the schlubby, nevishy guy. Yeah. In this one, he plays a badass hitman. It's fun to watch him do that for a change. He you should know. get to do that. Well, I respect the fact that you like this film. I just, I just don't. Listen, I'll be the first one to admit it's not for everybody, and it's not something that I would readily... And I will give it credit. It's definitely uh, more tolerable than that god-awful Romeo is bleeding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, like I'm saying, out of all the Tarantino imitations, this is probably the best one that I've seen. I hate all these characters Mm -hmm. in this film, but not with the sheer deep loathing I had for Romeo's Bleeding's characters. Yeah, Romeo's Bleeding is just like, yeah. I think I had to see that in like two or three... Oh, I saw that in in a press screening with uh, my editor at Fangoria Mm -hmm. and two or three other people. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, of the people who saw that, only myself and this guy... Chris Pagali, actually had ever read a Jim Thompson novel. Remember how that film dragged on? Oh, I tell you, I had to watch it like two or three times. And the thing thing I I hated the most about it is that there was nobody to identify in that film because there's one person in the film you think is the only person you can identify with who's played by Annabella Sciorra. And then about two-thirds of the way into the film, something is revealed about her that makes you realize that she is just as slimy as everybody everybody else. At the end of the film, I said to Chris, God, I hated this movie. This fucking pseudo Thompson bullshit. To which the editor said, I thought it was very Thompson esque. And I lost it. I turned to him and I said, How many Jim Thompson novels have you read? He said, None. And I said, Then shut up. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? You know what a lot of problems, a lot of problems is that these guys don't try to write a story. They try right. to write a clever story. Mm. And they end up out clevering Well, they themselves. think people think that. If they come up with a stylish enough plot, that will cover up the fact that they haven't really thought through their characters. Exactly. God, hell, who cares about logic? As long as it's... I can't. Time for the wrap-up? Time for the wrap-up, yeah. What do you think? Okay, fine by me. So, my three choices, including the only happy film in the the whole... The only happy film in the whole thing. Sad movies. Relatively speaking. Sad movies were the romance slash... Nuclear Meltdown, Seven D. Jarnett's last feature film, Miracle Mile, the goofy, fun, happy martial arts comedy, Barry Gordon's The Last Dragon, which is the one that's got the happy ending, uh, and the rather thoughtful, grim film noir, The Limey. Which, even though it doesn't have a happy ending, is still worth seeing. My three are, first of all, the detective story, Hammett. 
starring Frederick Forrest. That's based on the life of the crime writers. Samuel mm-hmm. Dashiell Hammett. Second one was Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which is the Tarantino esque crime thriller that Tom hates to death. <laughs> but I liked because of the made up gangster language yes. and the eccentric, quirky characters. And I got to see Steve Buscemi play a badass assassin. Mr. Shh. <laughs> Mr. And, Shh. And Sam Peckinpah's masterful Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Starring Warren Oates. So these are all excellent films that we recommend. Well, you recommend one of them that I do not, but I respect that. What would you need to say that? For goodness sakes, even the name of the lead character isn't original in that what? film. Jimmy the, Jimmy the Saint. It's from a Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, really? You know, you know the, the writer Ed Bryant? Yeah, I've heard of He's him. a horror writer. Okay. They're putting together a best of compilation from around the time this film came out. He wanted to call it things to do in Denver where you're dead, and mm-hmm. they didn't let him do it because no. of this thing. Administrative stuff. Administrative stuff, yes. Let's get away from the Tarantino mankate. If you want to send us a line, say, hey, I support Derek in his liking of that film, and you suck, Tom. <laughs> or you want to suggest a subject for an upcoming episode. Which you can do. We do listen, we read all of our email, and we do take your uh, comments into uh, consideration you can send us an email at better the dark at gmail.com that's better the letter n the dark at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our podomatic page which is better in the dark or you can join our mailing group which is yahoo.movies.com backslash groups backslash better in the dark promise we will be getting to that message board real soon. If we haven't done it already by the time I you listen, listen yes, to this. We don't yeah. know when this is going out. Yeah, we don't know when this is going to air, so it might be up by the time you hear it. So when we do Obscure Movies 3, can we try to keep it to Happy Movies? Why don't we do that? Next do one, we promise, we promise will be Happy Fun Movies. Not this death and grief and sorrow and murder. <laughs> but until <laughs> this has been Derek Ferguson. And as has been Tom DJ. And whatever you do, no matter where you go, whatever you go into a theater to see, go, go see, see that, that movie. movie. Good night. Good night. Take care. Look at you. You got a lady? No. That's because you're hanging around with the virus breeders, Jimmy. VBs. You into that yet? Fighting a pillow? No. You will. It's a liberal thing. One day you're saving a rainforest, next... You chugging cock. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Leonard Hayhurst of the 411 Movie Podcast, Desmond Reddick of Dread Media, David Lifton of Wings for Wheels, and of course the members of the Better in the Dark Yahoo group at movies.groups.yahoo.com backslash group backslash Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark has directed its pizzas to Papa Green's Pizza, but it keeps ending up at some dumb guy's fortune cookie factory. Previous episodes for the show can be downloaded from betterinthedark.podomatic.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better, the letter N, the dark at gmail.com. Interact with the hosts and the fans of this podcast at the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards105.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation. All material copyright, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember, never, ever, ever put your gun anywhere Christopher Walken tells you to, even if he's in a wheelchair has a bid for sympathy. A girl could do worse than to have her own real-life kung fu master. I am no master. <laughs>